Well, good morning to you, church family, and good morning to the saints of First Baptist of Hacienda Heights. I know this is not ideal, but praying that you are all healthy and doing well in the Lord. One of the greatest objections to the Christian faith throughout history is, why does God allow evil? If there is a good and loving God, why does he allow something like the coronavirus? Or if he is powerful, why doesn't he just stop it? This is not merely a theoretical question right now, but an existential and personal question as we see cases of new infections, death tolls, uncertainty in regards to what will happen in the future. Whether you are a Christian or not, every worldview has to deal with the problem of evil. From an Eastern point of view, maybe suffering is just an illusion or is the result of bad karma we are dealing with from a previous life. From a secular viewpoint, which is probably the majority of Americans, suffering really has no answers and should be avoided at all costs. So we may point the finger at somebody, whether that's a country or whether that's a leader in office or failures in our institutions. Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist, said that pain in the world really has no answers. He said this, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither know, knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. A pandemic like the coronavirus, according to a secular worldview, is a disease with no purpose or concern. And we simply dance to the music of a cold and purposeless universe. According to Dawkins, some will get lucky and others will not. Suffering is ultimately meaningless and should be avoided. And tough luck, just deal with it because we live in a purposeless universe that eventually is going to run out of energy and die anyways. In contrast, there is the biblical worldview. Christians are not exempt from suffering. But I believe that the Christian worldview does give us answers and hope when it may seem hopeless. A, a Christian understands the, the most fundamental questions about reality. How we got here? What's wrong with this world? Why do we live in a world where disease run rampant? What is the solution and how it will all end? The Bible gives us a realistic yet hopeful answers. The, the Bible tells us that there is a sovereign God who is in control of all things, who is infinitely wise and just, who can turn even evil things for good of the believer and the glory of his name. People have asked the same questions throughout history. 
Is God a God of love if he really permits pain? Is he a God of mercy when he permits diseases? J.C. Rowell, an Anglican pastor in Liverpool who lived over 100 years ago, responded this way. There is often present sorrow for the sake of future joy, present pain for the sake of future health. I asked him to believe that God allows pain, sickness, and disease, not because he loves to vex man, but because he desires to benefit man's heart, man's mind, and conscience, and soul to all eternity. Ryle would even call sickness in his time a real friend to man's soul because it helps men remind them of death, helps them think seriously of God, helps them <clears throat> soften men's hearts, humbles us, tests the genuineness of our faith. Or think of the words of C.S. Lewis. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Trials can test whether we truly have a genuine and real faith. That's where our study will be this morning in the book of James. One of the main themes of James is a genuine faith, a faith that truly works. Paul is not in contradiction with Apostle Paul's teaching on justification by faith. He is responding to those who have an empty faith. And one of the ways true faith is revealed and strengthened is through pain and suffering. See, when trials come, the temptation for the believer and the temptation for you and I is to turn away from God rather than turn to God. When pain and suffering come, the temptation is to doubt God's goodness and doubt God's love. Instead of trusting God, we may even be bitter at God. But James reminds us that God is utterly sovereign over all things, including our suffering. As Christians, we are in a period of trial for many of us. Many more trials will probably happen. Millions have filed for unemployment. Some will lose their jobs. Some may even contract the disease. Some of loved ones may even contract a sickness. And maybe some of you. But whereas the unbeliever sees suffering as meaningless and pointless, b believers can have joy in trials in all circumstances because suffering for the believer is not meaningless, but meaningful and is redemptive. So I want to ask three questions this morning from a familiar passage. Three questions as we consider how to have joy in trials. So how do we respond to trials? Question number one. Question number two is, why does God allow trials? And question number three is, what does God accomplish in trials? So if you have a Bible, would you read along with me in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4? James chapter 1, just four verses in this epistle that is full of commands and imperatives and is super practical. Starting in verse 1. 
James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the tw- 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the reading of God's holy word. Before we ask these questions, notice the author, James. Most commentators agree that the one writing the letter is the half-brother of Jesus, the apostle James. This was not James, the apostle, the son of Zebedee, because he was executed shortly after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We find that in Acts chapter 12. This was most likely the half-brother of Jesus. The Gospels tell us that Mary and Joseph had children after the virgin conception of Christ. When, when Jesus grew up, even his own brothers did not believe in him and believed he was out of his mind. You can find that out in Mark 3 or John chapter 7, verse 5. Yet shortly after Christ was raised from the dead, James became a be- believer. He became a pillar in the church. He became one of the leading uh, apostles in the Jerusalem church. And and notice how he identifies himself. He says he is a servant of God. The CSB translates it slave. And I think that's the most accurate translation where we get the word doulos. In the Old Testament, a servant of God was a person like Moses or David. And here, I think the best translation is that James, you see here, does not identify himself as the, the half-brother of Jesus or the leader of the Jerusalem church. or the, He doesn't lay out his credentials, but he calls himself a slave. He became a humble man of God. Tradition even says that James was martyred by the Jews. An important reminder for the, those of us who lead in God's church. Leaders in God's household must be marked by humility. Humility is absolutely essential in ministry. Unrepentant arrogance and pride should have no place among those who are called to lead and serve God's people. And this was James. He was humbled. He identifies himself as a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Some scholars would say that even identifying Christ in the same clause shows that Christ is deity and his co equality with God the Father. And notice the recipients. He writes to the dispersion. The word meant scattering. If you know Israel's history in 722, the, the Jews were exiled out of their land by the Syrians and Judah shortly after in 586 BC. They were no longer in the promised land that God brought them because four nations would come and discipline his people for their disobedience. And he says to the 12 tribes of Israel. Some commentators argue that he is writing to Jewish Christians alone, but I believe that he's writing to all Christians scattered throughout the world. The people of God are those who place their faith in Israel's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word dispersion is used in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and Acts chapter 8, verse 4, where Saul approved the execution of Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, or Acts 8, 4. Now, those who are scattered went about preaching the word. I think this verse is timely, given the fact that we are scattered and 
we can't gather for the time being. So we turn to the first question. How should we respond to trials? Notice in verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's interesting that in the book of James, James has over 50 imperatives or commands just in these five chapters. And the first imperative or command is in this verse. Count it all joy or reckon or consider. The command is concerning how we think rather than how we feel. In other words, have a divine and heavenly perspective when trials come. The tense of the verb conveys a sense of urgency, uh, definitive action. It is a conscious, deliberate, mental resolution. And he says, count it all joy, my brothers. This is a perspective that only believers can have. Again, in an atheistic and a secular universe, all suffering should be avoided because suffering is ultimately meaningless. Because there is no design, no purpose, no evil or good. The secular solution to the virus is to just deal with it until science can give us a vaccine or an answer. But in a theistic universe, a, a universe governed by a sovereign God, we consider it joy when we meet trials of various kinds. One writer said James is calling for a positive attitude towards trials that he views as opportunities under God's grace for growth and development in the Christian life. Christian faith must apprehend the beneficial results are to be derived from such an experience and so accept them as occasions for rejoicing. I don't think that James is calling us to be stoic or wear a forced smile that seeks to ignore the pain, but he is saying that we are to trust. It's an attitude of a believer, whatever the circumstances may come. As believers, we inherently breathe in a materialistic culture. And we think that God is only good to us when he gives us things rather than thinking that God is good to us in spite of the things because we get to know him. And notice, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What is trial? Uh, depending on the context, the word trial can mean testing or temptation. Testing uh, refers to... Uh, directed toward an end or discovering the quality of an object or a person tested. Think about how a diamond is expected or how gold refined in the fire. And notice the time of trial. He says, when you encounter various trials, it's not if trials will come, it's when trials will come. When implies it's going to happen if it is not already happening to you already. And he says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, multifaceted trials, diverse trials. Trials come in all shapes and sizes, whether it's small trials, big trials. When you meet various trials, or the King James translates it, when you fall into various trials. Uh, the same word that is used of the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the man fell into the hand of robbers. So each believer will have trials 
in a fallen world. Trials can be small as what is going to happen with summer school or school in the fall to larger trials like layoffs or someone you love getting infected or you yourself getting infected or even death. Trials can be come in forms like a delay in stimulus checks or unemployment checks. Christians, because we live in a fallen world, we can deal with trials of isolation, trials of loneliness, relational trials, whether it's at home or with our family or with our friends, marital trials, mental, financial trials, spiritual trials, trials at work, trials regarding wealth, trials regarding health. And just a side note, I think this is why the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. This pandemic has shown the empty and vain words of these prosperity preachers. But that's for another discussion. The believers James James was writing to were experiencing economic trials. You find that in chapter 1 and chapter 5, they were dealing with conflict in the church. You find that in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Some were even sick. You see that in chapter 5. Trials come in different forms, and you and I will probably encounter many more trials in this season that God has given us. So how are we to respond? James says, count it all joy. Not that we find joy or thank God for evil, but we thank God that in the midst of trial, knowing that God will work all things for good, and he will even use evil to work out good for the believer. We trust in a loving and a gracious God who will not abandon us nor forsake us. We look to him and his promises to bring us comfort in this season. So Christian, expect trials when they come and think about your attitude and how you will respond to trials. Will you count it all joy or will you be bitter at God? Peter put it this way, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. All Christians will experience various trials. And Christian, don't despair, but lean into God's promise. We are reminded of the words of Romans 8, if he who did not spare up his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, joy is found in knowing God, regardless of the circumstances. Trials and suffering work out good for the believer. And if you're not a Christian, suffering and pain in this world should be a signpost to you, a call for you to repent of the greater suffering that is going to come. For those who reject Christ, the Bible calls that place hell, a place of eternal conscious torment. The promise of God working all things together for good is for believers. For the non-Christian, suffering is a signpost and a call to repentance. We are not invincible and we are not mortal, immortal. It is appointed that a man dies once and then comes the judgment. The reason why we experience experience plague and disease in the world is ultimately a result of human rebellion against God, according to Romans chapter 8. 
When sin entered into the world, creation was disrupted from its purpose to show us the horror of sin because God is holy. Yet God is also merciful. He sent his son into the world filled with disease and disaster, yet without sin. His son was conceived of a virgin. He was punished on a Roman cross, though innocent. Why? Because he was bearing God's wrath in your place for your sin as your substitute, that you would repent and place your faith in God's perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, Christ rose again from the dead, and he offers you peace and forgiveness of sins and the hope of a renewed creation if you call upon him today. Suffering can be redemptive if it awakens your soul to eternal realities. So how do we respond to trials? We consider it joy. It's an attitude. But second, why does God allow trials? Why does God allow suffering in the life of a believer? Well, notice in verse 3, for you know that that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's one thing to read a book about riding a bike. It's another thing to actually ride a bike as my children are going to get bikes and as I teach them how to ride a bike. Or for me, it's one thing to read a book about barbecue, but it's another thing to actually know how to make good barbecue and to make it come out well. James is saying, for you know. Uh, The word is a a knowledge by experience. We get a greater knowledge of God through affliction and through pain because we get to draw near to God in our pain. I commend to you uh, John Piper's new book, Coronavirus in Christ, which is free. He says this, he says, what God is doing in the coronavirus is showing us graphically, painfully, that nothing in this world gives us the security and satisfaction that we find in the infinite greatness and worth of Jesus Christ. This global pandemic takes away our freedom of movement, our business activity, our face-to-face relations. It takes away our security and our comfort. And in the end, it may take away our lives. The reason God exposes us to such losses is to rouse us to rely on Christ Or to put it another way, the reason he makes calamity the occasion for offering Christ to the world is that the supreme, all-satisfying greatness of Christ shines more brightly when Christ sustains joy in suffering. Faith can deepen in trial. Testing, as mentioned, implies refining or, or going through the fire. Suffering can reveal whether your faith is truly sincere. Job 23.10 says, But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Or in the words of Peter, In this you rejoice, though now a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or if you think about the Old Testament, think about God leading his people through the wilderness in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And God says in Deuteronomy 8, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 days in the wilderness, that he might humble you. Or think about 
when the Babylonian envoys were sent to King Hezekiah. Second Chronicles 32, 31 says, And so in the matter of the envoys and the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Trials can refine us and can show whether our faith is truly sincere and genuine. But secondly, trials can develop Christian character. Notice the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patience or endurance, other translations say, or the NIV, perseverance. It's not talking about here a passive endurance or a stoic endurance, but an active endurance. Uh, It's talking about endurance that is characteristic of a soldier active in the line of duty or a marathon runner who is actively enduring to, to, to get to the finish line. Trials can help round out spiritual character. And one of the greatest blessings of trial is that we can get a deeper and more intimate and experienced knowledge of God. Calvin said it this way, in trials, trials can be an aid to salvation and sanctification. He says, we certainly dread diseases and want and exile and prison and reproach and death because we regard them as evils. But when we understand that they are turned through God's kindness unto helps and aids to our salvation, it is ingratitude to murmur and not willing, willingly to submit thus to his fatherly care. You know, even the Puritans would speak of how trials can develop character. Thomas Watson wrote in his book, All Things for Good. He says that trials teach us to pray, teach us to rely on God, to humble us, to refine us to help us to be able to comfort others in suffering, to help us to look to heaven, to give us strength that only God supplies. Or you think about biblical examples. Think about Joseph, where he was betrayed, sold into slavery, forgotten, unjustly accused, yet God was with him for the redemption of his people. Or think about Moses, who was in the wilderness for many years before he was sent to Egypt to deliver God's people, only to be in the wilderness again. Or think about the example of the Apostle Paul who learned humility through the thorn in his flesh. Or think about our greatest example, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see, brothers, God does not sit in an ivory heavenly throne or tower, but he comes down to us in the second person of the Trinity entering into our humanity, experiencing our suffering. Hebrews 5.8 says, he, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Many of the greatest saints we admire and read about suffered great affliction and experienced various trials, yet God developed their character and deepened their faith as a result. Trials deepen our experiential knowledge of God. It helps us experience the Bible in ways we would have never known before if we were not suffering. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. 
God's word comforts us in our affliction. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Christian, this is a great time to grow deeper in experience with God's word through trial. This is a time to memorize God's word. And in particular, I would encourage you to read the book of the Psalms during this time. The Psalms give us language in dealing with our pain and our suffering. I commend you the book, Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney, which teaches you to pray through the Psalms. And church, there's going to be various levels of spiritual maturity, but trials can help refine some of that, the, the religious fluff we hold on to and develop endurance and character as we lean into and depend in our gracious God. If you do not have this perspective in mind that God intends this for your good, you will be tempted to complain and be bitter at God. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In trial, we get more of God if we consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that it produces steadfastness and endurance. But finally, what does God accomplish in trials? Well, that's in verse 4. What God accomplishes in trials is that he helps the believer mature, and be conformed to the image of Christ. That's in verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here is another command or imperative issued by James. In other words, one translation says, Let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If this is a command then that means this command can be disobeyed. I think just if you look at the context, you can hinder spiritual growth by being double-minded, by being perilous, by not having the right perspective on wealth, if you read in the verses following, by accusing God as being a tempter when God tempts no one, or even giving into sin, which leads to death, as you read on in James chapter 1. And some... Unbelief can hinder spiritual growth. You will not develop into a healthy and mature Christian if you do not believe that God is good or you do not believe that the promises of God are good. So James says, let endurance do its work. Let it grow. There is purpose in trial. And notice that you may be perfect. Teleos. It's something reaching its desired goal or end or purpose. It's not talking about a spiritual perfection. That's none of us. But it's talking about a spiritual maturity. Or think about a baby developing and growing into a mature adult. That, that is the idea here. So tr trials, if you let the endurance and God work in the trial, he is developing you to be a mature Christian as you get a greater experience of God. And also he wants you to be a well-rounded Christian. Uh, not only perfect, but complete. The, the second word is the ideal of an Old Testament animal possessing all of its parts and an acceptable offering to God without any blemish or defect. In an ethical sense, it, it refers to being a well-rounded Christian. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Well, you know, as we let trials do its work, we want to round out the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. You can't say that you love, but you lack joy in your love. You, you can't say you have patience, but you are unkind. No, just like how God's love is a holy love or his justice is a loving justice, well, he wants Christians to be holy like how God is holy. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Just like athletes who train and feel pain in their training, so Christians are to grow in character through pain and suffering to help them mature and get them across the finish line. God wants you to be a mature Christian, a well-rounded Christian, and he often accomplishes that through various trials, if you let God's work not be hindered through unbelief. That's why we pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We confess where we have had wrong views of God, or where we have complained or failed to believe God's goodness in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, in his purpose. And we pray that God would help us mature as we depend on him in prayer. And God would equip us through the preaching of God's word and the body working itself out in love through the local church. And the local church is the natural place where this maturing takes place. So how do we respond to trials to sum up? We consider it all joy. Why does God allow trials to produce endurance in the Christian life? What does God accomplish in trial? Maturity and conformity to Christ. Only a believer can live with such perspective, and only a believer can have peace and joy in the midst of trial. Because we have a God who is not distant or far removed from us, but a God who has come near and has become one of us. As the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews 2.9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom, by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect or mature, through suffering. And Jesus was a faithful and empathetic high priest, wasn't he? Because he entered into our pain. He entered into our sorrows. And that's why Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because he is without sin, we are to look to Jesus founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because he endured the cross, absorbing God's wrath to secure our peace with God, we can endure whatever trial God sends our way because he's working all things together for good to make us more like Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. If you're not a Christian, this is the time to repent 
and turn to a gracious and loving God in Jesus Christ. God offers you forgiveness so that you wouldn't be surprised by suffering, but you would have peace in suffering because Christ has already suffered by bearing God's wrath so that you can have peace no matter what happens. Make your faith real by being baptized and joining a local church to prove the validity and genuineness of what you profess when the churches can assemble again. One of the best films I've watched during this stay-at-home season is a film called The Dropbox. It's a documentary of a pastor in South Korea who rescues abandoned and orphaned children through a tiny drop box installed in their home or their church. A LA Times article published that outside of this drop box, it, it says this is a facility for the protection of life. If you can't take care of your disabled babies, don't throw them away but or leave them on the street. Bring them to this drop box. Well, 25 years ago, Pastor Lee and his wife gave birth to a son, a son, a baby that was so disfigured that Pastor Lee kept the boy from his mother until he could figure out a way to tell her the unthinkable, explaining that this child had a serious illness and was rushed to another hospital. This baby was born with cerebral palsy, a cyst on his head that choked off blood flow and doctors gave him months to live. And the doctors told Pastor Lee that if this baby would live, that this child would live on his back and be bedridden his whole life. They named him Unman, which means full of God's grace. Unman's birth caused Pastor Lee to question the goodness of God. When this baby was born, he said, he asked God, why would you give me this handicapped child? I wasn't grateful for this baby, Lee recalled. And then in the film, he says he repented within 30 seconds. He soon began to regret those words, looking down at his son, helpless and beyond hope. And he says he began to witness the preciousness of life. He and his wife decided to work desperately to keep the boy alive. Given his limited brain function, Uma needed constant care. So Pastor Lee spent the first 14 years of his life, of his son's life, at a hospital. To help pay for his care, Lee sold uh, his family food market, borrowed money, took, out, took up odd jobs to bring in more cash. But in the film, uh, Pastor Lee said that he began to understand God's good purpose in it. That even in the disability and the trial of his son, he began to see the beauty and the value of human life. And because of what his son taught him, he adopted orphan children who were abandoned in this dropbox by teenage girls who were not able to deal with their parents or mothers who did not want a baby with disability. And this pastor has rescued dozens of dozens of disabled and orphaned children. And even the movie director who went to go film this amazing story, himself seeing the sacrificial love of this pastor became a Christian himself. As he saw how Pastor Lee had joy in the midst of such pain, enduring, and as a true follower of Christ, the director himself became a follower of Christ. 
we may not know why God allows and permits evil, but sometimes God reveals his purposes, his good purposes in this life. But if not in this life, in the life to come, he will reveal that God was wise and good all the time as Jesus makes all things right and wipes away every tear. William Cooper was a hymn writer who struggled with depression, and he wrote this famous hymn entitled God Moves in Mysterious Ways. To conclude, he says this, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm, deep in unfathomable minds. Of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break. And blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast. Unfolding every hour, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain in his own time, in his own way. May we count it all joy when we encounter trials of various kind. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to trust your loving, sovereign wisdom in this season, in, in all seasons, Lord. We pray that when trials come, we would consider it all joy, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And we pray that endurance would have its full effect so that we would be mature and conform to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to grow deeper in love with you. And help us not to run away from you in pain and suffering, but run to you, knowing that you are good and knowing that your son suffered for us so that suffering is not meaningless, but redemptive because Christ was raised from the grave and he will make all things new. Help us to hope in your steadfast love. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.